Well, good morning, everybody. Gorgeous uh, couple days we've got here. So. It's good to be with you and uh, to look at God's Word together. And uh, I've got two weeks here. We're going to work around a uh, kind of a unified theme. And what uh, I guess provoked me on this was, uh, or got me thinking about it, was uh, the surprise announcement last month of the Supreme Court decision, uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which uh, overturned uh, almost 50 years of legalized abortion in the United States. Uh, I have to confess, I never thought I'd live to see this day. And uh, so it really is quite remarkable in my mind. Uh, The reason I want to launch off of this, though, to talk about the the bigger questions of, of life and death is that uh, according to the Pew Research Center recent uh, survey, 61% of the people surveyed now say that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. 37% say it should not be legal in all or most cases. So roughly two to one. And as you know, the Supreme Court decision then has just uh, inflamed the the polarization of our uh, culture and uh, and may also be uh, uh, stirring things up in the evangelical world. The the same research center uh, says that evangelicals are split uh, pretty much the reverse of the, the larger culture with about 33% in favor of legalized abortion and 63% against. And that's that's pretty solemn too, it seems to me. So I wanted to think about this, but I wanted, as I said, to think about it uh, as part of a larger perspective. And that is to see that widespread abortion in our culture... And, of course, it's going to continue to be widespread because the, the Supreme Court decision has now thrown this all back on the states to decide what they're going to do. And uh, uh, more liberal-leaning states are going to uh, continue to approve of uh, abortion on demand. More conservative states, uh, some have already uh, come out with prohibition. But, but the... The problem is not going to go away, and what I want to think with you about is that this particular issue is part of a much larger issue of widespread and, I think, growing violence in our culture. So there's not just the abortion question, there's the question of uh, uh, euthanasia, uh, euphemistically a good death, right? Uh, and the role of uh, uh, the, the medical technology involved in uh, uh, actively putting people to death who are in various uh, situations of ill health and so forth. Uh, 
Uh, with that goes physician-assisted suicide, uh, now legal in a number of states. Child and spousal abuse at, uh, seems to me, epidemic levels. Human trafficking, we heard a little bit about that. We'll hear more about it uh, uh, in the next hour. But uh, that also uh, uh, proliferating. Rising murder rates. Can't listen to the news at all without being aware of, uh, of the anarchy that we're seeing in, in many places in our culture. So those were a, a few of the things that I think form part of this larger question of how do we view life? And uh, that's what I want to work on. And I want to start out by looking at this question, uh, what are human beings? Because I think part or a large part of the issue here is uh, an understanding of who we are. And for that, I want to look at Psalm 8, and I want to look at Genesis chapter 1. And we'll look at Genesis first, and then we'll look at Psalm 8, because, because I think that in Psalm 8, David is, is reflecting on Genesis chapter 1. So let's read a little of Genesis 1. This is the sixth day of creation. Then God said... Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now in Psalm 8, here's what I imagine to be the background. Uh, I imagine King David... Maybe he's not king. Maybe he's still that young man shepherding his father's flocks. Or maybe he is king now. And uh, he's not out in the fields, but maybe he's on the roof of his palace. And uh, before electric lights in Jerusalem, before uh, light pollution in the sky, and he's viewing the heavens. And as he views the heavens, he's also thinking about Genesis chapter 1. That's, that's my theory. He says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So he's, he's looking at the sky, right? What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. 
And here's Genesis chapter 1. You have made them a little lower than the angels. That's one translation. But, but actually in Hebrew it says you have made them a little lower than God. Or possibly the gods. And crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. That's Genesis 1. Let them rule. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, there's, there's a way of thinking and meditating and reflecting here that David is doing that I, th- I think is essential that we get a handle on. <clears throat> Here's a quotation from John Calvin, who on, I suppose, anybody's list of the top ten most influential theologians in the history of the church, Calvin would be somewhere on that list. And in the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was so influential, here's here's the opening lines. Calvin says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom. Remember, wisdom is, is how to live God's way in God's world. So nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. And and then he goes on to explain that those two ideas are, are woven together. So true wisdom means knowing who God is, but it's also knowing who we are and And knowing who God is helps us to know who we are. And then understanding who we are helps us to understand who God is. They're intertwined that way. I think that's the point that he he wants to make. And when you look at David in, or you look at Genesis chapter 1, but just the psalm of David, you notice he's doing both things. He starts out, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. But then he goes into that question halfway through, well, well, who are we then? What are human beings? And, and that's, what, that's what Calvin is talking about. See, those two need to be woven together. So I want to think a little bit this morning about uh, those two questions. The first question is, who is God? And that would be a real long series if we tried to answer that fully, but let's Let's start out with where the the Bible starts out. Who is God? The answer is that God is the creator. Without God, there is nothing except God. David looks not just to the earth, but he looks to the heavens. Genesis 1 starts out with the creator God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it talks about the 
the creation of lights and the creation of heavenly bodies and the creation of different aspects of the earth, the seas and so forth, and then the, the bringing forth of various forms of animal life, and finally, halfway through day six, you come to the, the center, if you will, or the pinnacle of creation, which is the creation of human beings. David looks at the heavens, though. He says, you have set your glory in the heavens. Now, some of you probably recognize this picture. It's, it's been in the news <clears throat> because this is one of the first pictures to be published from the James Webb uh, telescope. And with the James Webb telescope, we're, we, that is astronomers, include myself as an astronomer, <laughs> we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing things that we didn't know existed. This is a picture of the uh, Carina Nebula, which is part of our galaxy, Milky Way galaxy. And uh, a nebula, as I understand it, is a kind of a star factory. It's a combination of dust and gas, and stars are formed in a nebula. In this nebula, stars are being formed now. Isn't that stunning? <clears throat> and this is one of the things that uh, this nebula was identified over 200 years ago, but, but seeing it now with such extraordinary clarity, because uh, the James Webb Telescope is a million miles out in space. And uh, the clarity of images. <clears throat> so, I mean, it's stunning. Some people seem to have the idea, as you listen to them talk, that uh, ancient people were wowed by the universe, what they could see. They could only see you know, a few thousand stars by the naked eye. But they were wowed by it because they were kind of naive. And they just didn't know very much. And that if, you, if you know more, then the wonder ceases. Or at least it, it's lessened. So we who now live in the modern age don't have as much to be stunned by as, you know, poor old David just looking off his rooftop. In fact, I think it's just the opposite. I think the more our technology has developed, the more wondrous the creation appears to us, both on the micro level as you go down and on the macro level as you go out. It was just, I was reading this week, it was, it was just under 100 years ago, in the 1920s, that astronomers thought that the limits of the universe were the limits of the Milky Way galaxy. Which would be pretty impressive in itself because current estimates are that there are, ready for this? 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy and another 100 million planets. But that was 100 years ago. And a few years after that, 1924, Edwin Hubble 
gave a much bigger perspective. Of course, the Hubble telescope is named after him. But there was a realization that there were other galaxies beside the Milky Way galaxy. The estimate now is that beyond the Milky Way galaxy, our little home in the universe, there are somewhere between one and two trillion other galaxies. David says, Lord, you have set your glory, your splendor in the heavens. And you can probably say amen to that, huh? We should. We should be people who, with these ancient believers, honor, praise, and glorify God, who is the creator and the sustainer of all things. In fact, John the Apostle tells us that one of the themes of heaven's worship is exactly this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And you may remember that the book of Hebrews starts out praising God's Son and says of Him, among other things, that He upholds everything by His powerful Word. Who is God? Answer in the Bible? Partial answer, but the beginning answer is God is the Creator. He is the Lord of life. He's the Lord of all that exists. So God is the Creator, And the Creator has a purpose in creation. Multiple purposes, I suppose. But but here is the big thing that stands out when you read the creation story. Or again, when you come to David in Psalm 8 and, and many, many other passages in Scripture that talk about this theme. That what God is up to as the Creator is that he is designing the world for life. He is the God of life. He is himself the living God who is and was and who always will be. And he designs the creation for life. And and so you follow that creation story in Genesis chapter 1, and it goes from the creation of the planets and the earth and, and then the, the forming of a suitable habitat for life and then animals and all sorts of creeping things are, are made and finally human beings are made and placed there. And where are they placed? Well, they're placed in a garden, a place of beauty, a place of life, because that's what God is about. He is about not just creating life, but sustaining life in the best possible conditions. And of course, the extraordinary thing is that that he creates human beings to share, not only share in that life, but to 
to share with him in, in the improvement and the protection and provision of life. We'll talk about that in a minute. So who is God? Well, he's the creator who creates for life. But, but then what we find in the biblical story is <clears throat> that there's an enormous error that enters in uh, almost right from the beginning. The error comes in because there is an enemy of God's purposes. And <clears throat> the enemy enters into that garden that's designed for life, and he says to the first human beings, uh, you know, this is all very nice. Uh, it's nice of God to do this for you, but the fact is there is a better way to life. And uh, you really don't need God in the picture to live life to its fullest. In fact, if you're going to live life to the fullest, you actually have to cut God out of the picture. <clears throat> so this becomes an enormously important thing as, as we raise this question about what does it mean to be human? Well, it means that we, we live in this tribe that has been designed for life but we're also part of this tribe that has said, uh, you know, I, th I think we can do this on our own. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. He says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God or to keep God in their knowledge, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. I think uh, there's a question here on interpretation, but I think Paul is probably looking back at that Genesis chapter 3, but I don't think that's all he's looking at. I think what he sees happening with Adam and Eve as they turn away from God and say, we will be gods for ourselves we'll do what we want. I think Paul sees there a pattern that repeats itself again and again in the history of the world, in the history of various human cultures and civilizations. I think he sees this in the Greeks when he goes to Athens, remember, and he, he talks to the Greek philosophers to expose them, to introduce them to a God that they admit they don't know. This, this then separating the question of God as creator from the question of who we are and thinking that we can establish who we are, that we can live the way we were designed to live, the way we want to live, that we could do that without God, that is the fundamental mistake of humanity. It's the fatal error. It leads to death. And that's what God said, right? In the day that you choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. We live in what we call a secular society. 
A secular society is a society that says, what you see is what you get. Is there a reality beyond what we can see, touch, measure? Well, secularism, for the most part, doesn't bother to argue that question. Maybe there is, but I don't see God around here, and uh, we seem to be doing pretty well on our own, so let's, let's do life, let's figure out who we are apart from the God question. What the Apostle Paul says is, that is a disaster. That's a catastrophe. And it tends toward death. So, we want to hold that question together as we then ask the second question. What is mankind? That's, that's what David does. Lord, you set your glory above the heavens. You created all things. But now what is man? In the light of 400 billion stars, suns, just in our galaxy, in the light of trillions of other galaxies, so massive, so beyond our comprehension. What is this puny little item, this human being? Well, he's thinking about Genesis chapter 1. And the answer is that this puny little human being is a sacred image bearer. There's the picture from the Sistine Chapel, right, of, of the creation of Adam and God reaching down, the, the fingers almost touching. I think that's, that's Michelangelo's way of talking about this likeness that we read of in the Bible. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And what's that likeness? Well, in the ancient world, uh, and, and sometimes in the modern world, rulers who exercise power over, you know, surrounding countries would erect statues of themselves in those places as, uh, as representation of their authority to remind people who they owe their allegiance to. And that, that seems to be part of what's involved here with human beings. What are human beings? They are representatives in creation of God himself. That's the part of the extraordinary glory that belongs to human beings. They represent God in the world. And they're given godlike tasks. Genesis 1, let's make human beings in our likeness, in our image, and let them rule. Ruling is God's function. And it's not ruling just in the sense of, you know, powering up. It's ruling the way God rules, which is ruling with the intention of caring for what he's made. 
So human beings have this stewardship, if you will, under God to care for creation. That's what's happening in the Garden of Eden. They're put there to, to tend the garden and extend it and defend it. And of course, they don't defend it. But they're sacred image bearers. Made like God. Bearing witness to who God is in the world. That's, that's God's intention. So in light of that, then, what, what's the value of a human life? Now, in a secular world, our culture, right, uh, people have developed various ways to try to answer that question. So, uh, some people say the value of a human life is its usefulness. Well, and then the question is, does that, does that mean everybody's useful? The answer in a world that forgets God is to say, no, not everybody's useful. That's the same world, uh, the same answer that much of the pagan world gave in the time of <clears throat> Jesus or before. The pagan world said, for example, life that is weak or life that is handicapped has no value. It's just a drain. This is a picture of a cave on Mount uh, Tegetus. I believe that's the right pronunciation. That's the, uh, I believe it's the highest mountain in southern Greece. And it's, it's a cave where unwanted children from the city of Sparta were deposited and abandoned. In Sparta, if there was a weak child or a deformed child or whatever... <laughs> the parents would bring the child to a a council that would evaluate whether the child should live or not. But in much much of ancient culture, Roman culture, that was pretty much just the father's decision. Uh, Sons were preferred. So if you already have a couple daughters... Would you want another one? And the answer was often no. And so children were abandoned on the dung heaps, the trash heaps. What about deformed children? They're not going to be useful. They're not going to be productive. <clears throat> so they were abandoned. It was one of the things that the early Christians were known for. That they went to the dung heaps and rescued those children. Orphanages 
grew up through Christian influence. Because Christians said, usefulness is not the adequate measure of value of a human life. Human life, even in places of weakness and sickness and deformity, human life still reflects the image of the Creator. And so it's valuable. We just uh, had a, a time of prayer this morning for our group, uh, Wes, and number of people that uh, go up each year to Johnny and Friends Camp. Uh, Johnny and Friends Camp says in a loud, powerful way, all children are valuable because they are reflection of the Creator. In a society that separates itself from the knowledge of God, Johnny and friends and people like that are viewed as strange. In the secular society, Doctors and medical technology people will frequently recommend that a child who, by testing, is shown to have various handicaps <clears throat> should be aborted. Why? Because they're not going to be useful. That's one argument. Or, uh, by the way, here's this, this is right at the at the elite levels of culture, folks. Here's Peter Singer, who is uh, an ethicist with a prestigious chair at Princeton University. And uh, Singer says, of course, infanticide, that is the killing of infants after they're born, it needs to be strictly, legally controlled and rare, but it should not be ruled out any more than abortion. Why? Because an infant may be judged to be unuseful and therefore not of sufficient value that its life should be preserved. The other argument, of course, is quality. If, if people don't have sufficient quality, defined by various standards, uh, you know, freedom from pain, uh, sufficient wealth, possessions, uh, a loving environment, etc., etc., if people don't enjoy sufficient quality of life, or probably will not, then it's judged that that life is not worth preserving. Well, what is the answer 
that Scripture points us to. If we remember that God the Creator creates for life, that He makes human beings in His image, then what do we say about life? Indeed, any human life. And we could look at many passages, but, but just think about Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the answer of divine love. God is committed to life, to your life, and to my life. Last week we... Uh, we sang uh, what uh, Aaron suggested might be the, the best hymn in the English language. Was it something like that, Aaron? <clears throat> and it certainly is a, it is a great hymn, Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest in the Savior's Love. And it's got that verse in it, or that chorus in it, remember. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. If we ask the question, what is the value of a human life, what is the greatest measure in terms of God's understanding of that? The measure is what God gave for your life and my life. And what he gave was the life of his son. God demonstrates his own love for us his valuing of the human race, even the, even the race that rebelled against him, even the race that said, we will not have this man to rule over us. God gave his son for me and for you. And in light of that, as Christians, we say, <clears throat> or it seems to me we, we ought to say that all human life in the womb, <clears throat> in, the, uh, in the critical care units, at uh, the local hospital, the infant, <clears throat> the elderly, the sick, those with disabilities, all of these are designed to reflect the image of God himself and they have value in his eyes and therefore they must have value in our eyes as well. Well, that's as much as we're going to do <clears throat> today. I'm going to ask our music team to come up and uh, let's close in prayer and and close with this thought, this invitation. Do you know the God who is the God of life? The one who designed you to live? The one that Jesus spoke of when he said, I'm the good shepherd and I have come that my sheep might have life and might have it abundantly. 
That's how God values you. And that's why he invites each of us to come to him in faith, to trust in Jesus, and to walk with him. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, with, uh, with David, we, we look at the world that you've created. We look at these images from space that David was never able to see. And yet... <clears throat> Yet those images help us to say amen to uh, his words of praise. Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You've shown your glory and splendor in the heavens. And Lord, it's, it's all the more of a wonder then that you'd be concerned with people like us. People who have turned our backs on you, who have sought our own way, who have said that uh, the plans and purposes of the Creator are not of interest to us. We would rather be gods on our own than to acknowledge who you are. Lord, forgive us. Turn our hearts afresh to you. And may we be people who value not only your life in us, but your life in those around us. In a violent world, God, may we be people that stand for life and work for life and honor life because we desire to honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.